Well, good morning and welcome to the worship of Almighty God this morning. And what a wonder these days are. We can gather here on Maiden Lane, but also be in God's Word at the very same time with those gathered there in Newcastle, and then also with um, several others in their home. Truly, this is a fellowship by God's Spirit. Um, and His Word is powerful and in return, not void, but accomplish all that God purposes. If you have a Bible, let's take it and let's turn up to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. Since May, we've been in this letter written by the Apostle Peter. The fisherman called off the sea to be a fisher of men, even a leader unto the early church, an encourager, an exhorter to these Christians scattered about in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. As we come to God's Word, let us pray. God, our Father, in times long ago, you spoke through prophets, but in these last days, you've spoken through your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word become flesh and dwelling among us, showing us the revelation of who you are, announcing the kingdom, and fulfilling your eternal plan for salvation. As we come, let us see him again today, crucified, dead and buried, risen from the grave, and now at your glorious right hand. We thank you for your word inscripturated, written over generations, many different authors, but telling the one story, the one revelation of who you are. We thank you for this letter of 1 Peter on how it has encouraged its first readers unto faithfulness in the midst of suffering, how it has been um, an aid to your church through the generations and even now to us in these days. May we hear it, believe it, and um, live it. May the words of my mouth, Father, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you because you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Come with me to verse 7. Today we'll be in verse 7 to verse 11. This is God's word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong dominion and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's Word. Last week we were in the first six verses of chapter 4. And a common theme of this letter is the theme of suffering, how Christians will suffer for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so Peter last week in these first six verses exhorted his readers to embrace suffering in this world for Christ's sake. Last week we were told to resolve ourselves to think like Christ who suffered in the flesh, to live for the will of God and to put away worldly passions. He told us the world will be surprised by our faith in Christ and that they would even malign us. 
But all will be judged. But our life is in Christ now and forever. And so for those first century believers, they were encouraged to embrace suffering in this world. These verses, 7 through 11, are embrace service in the Christian community, the church. So last week we looked out as the forces were coming from without against the church and persecution and our suffering for Christ's sake. These verses of this week are how do we now live within Christian community for God's glory? There'll be a bookend here. There'll be a future view, an eternal view. The end of all things is at hand. And then at the very end will be this grand doxology to Jesus be glory and dominion forever and ever. So this is a bookend of a future view that bookends these verses, 7 and 11. And in the middle, sandwiched between, are our present life together, how we are to live. And there are several commands here. Be self-controlled, sober-minded, love earnestly, show hospitality, serve one another. And the purpose for all of this is to glorify God. So come back with me to verse 7. The end of of all things, is at hand. My question to you, are we living in the last days? Are we living in the end times? According to the Bible, the end has already begun. We are living in these last days. Hebrews 1.1 Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The writer of Hebrews uses the phrase, in these last days. 1 Peter 1.20, do you remember this verse? He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but He was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. John will also use this language in his letter. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. The end of all things is at hand. We are living in the last days, but Derek, my question to you, are we living in the last, last days? That's what your real question was. Are we close to the second coming of Jesus Christ? But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. What mystery that is. Scriptures such as Matthew 24 and Mark 13 do speak to the signs of the end of the age. There's going to be rumblings of creation, of earthquakes, famines, plagues. There's an earthquake in California this past week. There's going to be the rise of evil, wars, rumors of war, lawlessness, centralization of power. Are we living in the last, last days? There's going to be wrestlings in the church of deception and false teaching and falling away. So these are questions that we ask again, and almost every generation has asked us, because we've been told since this 
New Testament times since this first century that we are living in the last days, this last hour. This is how the Bible demarcates time. Christ's first coming, now we live in this last hour, these last days, these last times, now into Christ's second coming. Now there's a rabbit hole we can go down here real quick of eschatology, and I want to keep this as a bigger frame of how we're reading the scripture, and then we can pull aside and talk details of eschatological views, um, of further prophecies, um, apocalyptic literature, to study the last, last days. But as we read the New Testament, we see that we're not just forwardly marching into time, into the future, but actually we see the inbreaking of heaven. We're not just moving forward in time, we're seeing the inbreak of God's kingdom. We sometimes think we're just going somewhere to arrive, but also, really what's happening is we're receiving more of what God is bringing about into this world. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is both a forward march of time, but it's also an inbreaking of the kingdom. And this is an inaugurated eschatology where Christ has proclaimed the kingdom, the kingdom is coming, and it will one day be consummated at Christ's return. Derek, I don't see this kingdom. Yeah, it's, it's every renewed heart, regenerated heart by heart, person by person, Christian community, church. This is a, a subversive kingdom. We're not seeing this as a, a theocratic rule, but we're seeing a subversive inbreaking of God's kingdom through the hearts of men, women, and children. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel were the first words of Jesus' ministry in Mark's gospel. 2 Peter 3, in the second letter Peter writes, chapter 3 says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is of a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Listen. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be living in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Both in this letter and in this next letter, Peter writes, here is the admonition. Our lens, our view into eternity should change the way we live now in the present. How we view, how we see eternity as revealed in the Scripture should change the way we live now today. Please see this. We're not self-determined, self-fulfilling individuals where we determine our destiny. We're going to like make our way and make our future. Rather, what we should see is this is the future. This is eternity. And that should now shape us in the present. We are being shaped by God for God's glory because of his promises that we've seen come true and are coming to true 
in our lives as well. But too often we're just tunnel vision into the grind of everyday life, not often looking into eternity. In this week, have you thought about life beyond your death? Do you think of that often? When everything's going good, we just kind of just get tunnel vision to the, to the grind, the joys of everyday life, comforts, conveniences. But when things are uncertain, we want to look beyond our grave and see what is there that's beyond into eternity. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, with a view to eternity, this should change our life in the present. Last week in verses 5-6, through six, Peter speaks about final judgment by Christ. Chapter 70, verses, he speaks to the end of all things. Peter is someone who's just a guy off the sea. He's got his mind set on life beyond this world. And he's telling us, how do we now live in view of that view into eternity? There's several commands here. Let's look at these. And what are they for? Look at verse 11 before we come back up to the commands. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. This is the book into the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, there's an all-encompassing everything in our life purpose here. The end of all things is at hand. And so now all of our life, everything is to glorify God. If I were to ask you, what is the purpose of your life? Why are you here? What is your chief end? Some of you, depending on your tradition that you grew up in, will categorize an answer back at me real quick. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. One of the older confessions says, our, our grandest purpose, the, the biggest thing you can do with your life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's all about God. It's all about His glory. That is why we are here. Can I ask a curious question? What is God's chief end? What's the biggest thing God could do? It's a weird way to phrase it, right? It's to glorify himself. To bring glory to himself and his good and right. Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So how can we glorify God? And perhaps some of you and I out of another catechism, the children's catechism, will say those. Well, by loving him and doing what he commands. How do we glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. We delight and trust in God who he is, his character. That's how we glorify God. We delight in our hearts. We trust in our lives on God's character. That's glorifying God. We praise God for what he's done, his works. And we obey God. For all that he commands. And these are the commands that now God gives us through the Apostle Peter for obedience in Christian community. Look at this first one. There's four. 
Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And we're going to see a contrast here to the verses of last week where we were told to like, put away, stop going to the drinking parties. Let's put away drunkenness. Be sober-minded and self-controlled. We are not to be drunk like the world, but sober-minded. We are not to be self-indulgent, but self-controlled. One old preacher says this, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is this. The former, that is the Christian, controls his temperament, while the latter, the non-Christian, is controlled by it. Good to confess your sins one to another. Who here has been drunk or high? Oh, I actually saw a hand. Everyone's like, he's like, we're gonna have confession time here. Good. What control of your mental capacities, your facilities did you have in that time? Come on, Derek, it's just a little buzz. Hard week. Start the weekend. Could you have taken a test during that time? Could you have operated a power tool at that time? Could you have driven someone to the hospital in a quick hour of need? Could you have rushed to minister to someone in crisis with that high? If you had the opportunity and you were high, could you have shared your faith in Christ, really setting the reason for the hope within you? Here's the qualifications for an elder, really the call for every Christian. 1 Timothy 3, be sober-minded, be self-controlled, be not a drunkard. Why? For those very same reasons we shared. You don't know when the hour of need is needed, when you're going to be called upon. But if we are out of commission, drunk or high, we're of no use to anyone. Drunkenness makes us useless unable to be present in the moment, and unable to love others. So self-control, this is not an exercise of our flesh. Read Galatians, it's actually a fruit of the Spirit. It's a gift and grace from God. 2 Timothy 1.7, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So what's the antithesis of fear? According to this verse, power, love, and self-control. Living in fear is not self-control. Living in fear is thinking that everything's out of control and God's no longer sovereign, God's no longer powerful. So someone texted me this past week. A fear of death is keeping too many from living in these days. And it is. It's a very dangerous business going out your door. Step onto the road, and if you don't keep to your feet, there's not knowing where you'll be swept off to. It's a dangerous business just getting out your door. There's always risk. And yet, as we try to get a hand on what is before us in these days, 
there's still advocacy to just shut everything down and to eliminate all risk. That everything can be done at home. You can work from home. You can educate from home. You can shop from home. You can vote from home. Just plug me up to the matrix then. If we, that's all we need to do to eliminate all risk. It's not self-control. Sober-mindedness is not merely for everyday life. It's actually spiritual warfare. We're going to come to next chapter in 1 Peter. And he says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded because we're in spiritual warfare. There's a very real devil prowling around wanting to devour us. And sobriety, sober-mindedness, is a freedom from being controlled from worldly things. Some of you celebrate anniversaries of sobriety. Number of days sober. Then become number of years sober. Being clean. But are we clean? Do we have clean hands in these days? What are we often so drunk with? Yes, alcohol, but what about other addictions? What are we taking into ourselves to numb the pain of these days? Drugs, illegal and legal. Food and gluttony. Social media and just numbed scrolling. Pornography and numbed viewing. Shopping. Just addictions that we are drunk on. We are binged on entertainment. That's part of our vocabulary now. Oh, that's a binge-worthy show. That's a show worthy to like take an entire week of your life, watch deep into the night, and then kind of go to work the next day and be of no use. We are imbibing on secular philosophies and ideologies. We are so drunk with the world. And Peter commands us, we must be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Don't lose. Peter knew that they were suffering for their faith and he calls them to sober-mindedness for prayer. The first resource here in this first command for living out Christ's victory in Christian community is the believer's prayer life. Prayer is primary. Even first in this list of commands. Could it be that our prayerlessness, if we are honest in examining our own hearts and disciplines, is because we're not self-controlled and sober-minded? Maybe the, the answer is not, I'm just going to pray better. Lord, show me where I am drunk with the passions of this world, where I have loves for the things of this world, and help me to repent of that so that I may love you more. Prayer is not just something we just try to do better at. It's, we need a displacing love, like love the, the world less, love the Lord more, and the more that we love the Lord, the more we talk to him and plead to him and come to him and praise him. But a person who's not self-controlled and sober-minded will be prayerful. 
our lens into eternity ought to shape our life in the present. The end of all things is at hand, therefore we ought to be prayerful. That has application for life in 2020. I've heard it, I've said it, I'll continue saying this. I'm not here to berate, but the American church is drunk with the world. We've just been too drunk with the world. We, we, just, we could just sip it, and we just thought we could imbibe it, we thought we could just socially kind of drink the world. We thought we could baptize a worldly lifestyle and call it faith in Christ. We thought we could commune with worldly ideologies and call it faith in Christ. But I think it's our prayer life that kind of exposes us. We're neither self-controlled nor sober-minded, not spiritually discerning the will of God and the threats of our times. But 2020 has come like just a splash of water. Who's been high or drunk? Yeah, had that friend or that roommate just splash water on you? Have you drank that, that pot of coffee? And you just got, there's a, a, a quick awakening here, but then what are you going to do? How are you going to flush your system? We are all shocked right now in this time. But the question is, will we finally admit that we are powerless and that life is unmanageable in the flesh? Well, my name is Derek. been a worldly Christian. Hey, Derek. Nice to meet you. See, we've got to take this step. Admit that we've been sinful. Confess our sin, that we've been worldly. Repent of it and plead to God to make us sober-minded again. So we can be, think clearly and be clear-minded so we can pray. That's the first command. The second is this, in this list. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. The first part of this verse is actually wall art in one of my kids' bedrooms that I bought, decorated with. It's when you got a household of five teens and a 20-year-old and two people in their 40s. you got to be reminded again, like, above all, love one another earnestly. This is the greatest commandment. And this by this, God will, people will know that we are Jesus' disciples if we have love for one another. What characterizes this love? It's familiar, but hear it again. It's kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And how are we to love one another with this love? Earnestly. This is to be a steadfast pursuit of each other in the way we love one another. Earnestly. This isn't that we have good feelings or heightened feelings for one another. It means that we will pursue one another when it gets hard. We will love one another even when there are offenses. We will pursue one another even when there's wrongdoings, trespasses. Why? Because it covers a multitude of sin. 
What does this mean to cover a multitude of sin? Perhaps there's an echo here of Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. What does it mean to cover a multitude of sin? This is, not what it, this is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the atonement of sin because we can't do that. I can't, you can't pay the penalty for my sin and I can't pay it for you. Only Christ Jesus paid it all on his perfect life, on his outstretched arms, on his shoulders, bearing the weight of our sin before God his Father, forsaken by God the Father. We saw how wondrous love this is. He paid it all for us. Only Jesus Christ can cover the multitude of our sins by atoning for them. And do you trust upon Jesus alone for salvation? This is not the covering up of sin either. This is not turning a blind eye to sin. It continues to be a stain upon the church to see sex abuse scandal after sex abuse scandal, um, extortion, the wrong use of money, and the abuse of women and minors in the church. This is not love to cover that up. Oh, we'll just handle that in-house. No, no, no. That's not love. Love is to, to shine light onto that darkness. What then does this mean that love covers a multitude of sins? That love in our Christian community will cover a multitude of sins. It means that we earnestly pursue peace and righteousness. We don't allow sin to flower or to blossom. We nip it in the bud. We don't chase around with badges being the Holy Spirit in everybody's lives, but we do have boldness to speak the truth in love, to lead in prayer for one another, and then when we do go to one another, do it in humility and courage. It'll mean forgiving. It'll actually mean boldly speaking the truth in love. It'll mean peacemaking. It'll mean being gracious and generous with one another. And so our lens into eternity ought to shape our life in the present. Because of, just look at what, how this, our life together is going to be perfected with Christ one day. And how can we not start to taste of it now? But this is now the climate of the crisis of our day, and we're feeling it in the church. We've gone now from physically distancing from one another to now relational isolation. This social distancing from one another is now communal detachment. This now spiritually distance from one another is now given us over to sin, to faithless fear, distrustful hatred, and judgmental pride. And Satan and his demonic host are smirking. Not really going to do much. Because we are imploding. Do you discern how distancing is destroying the church? I'm not, I'm not here saying that I'm against the wisdom of what we need to do and how to navigate these days. But I'm saying if we just so quickly embrace this that we just run to our own corners, our own homes, and never relate to one another again... I mean, there's been some conversations I've not had. It's been like weeks or a month or two with some folks. And there's like an awkwardness. Like, oh, this, it didn't feel right. What we had, we've now missed. But now trying to re-enter that, it's like, 
We should never miss that. It may look different, it may, but we cannot allow distancing to be the norm in the American church. We must earnestly follow Jesus together in Christian community. It's not good for us to be alone. I was meeting with one of our elders this past week, Lee Clark, and he said it this way. He's like, when we stop, we die. I mean, we've kind of felt, I mean, our youth ministry just, and children's ministry just halted in March. And like, what is inertia now to even like get an outside force acting upon us to get some inertia again? When we stop, we die. There's no, it's not a time for stopping. It's a time for pressing forward on how to do it in these, this new day. We don't stop worship. We don't stop work. We don't stop ministry. We should not stop mission. This is not a time to stop, but a time to earnestly love above all. Number three, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. What does it mean to show hospitality? Some have suggested this is the Christian Airbnb verse there for the first century. <clears throat> Christians are to welcome fellow believers into their homes as overnight guests. There weren't that many towns and inns, and as these Christians are scattered about, you could actually use them as a way to get from one point to another of just staying in their home. I mean, with these five provinces of Asia Minor, Hospitality could be a practical necessity and mutual courtesy for traveling Christians, even the courier of this letter. Talk to Polly Boone sometime. Where is she? I saw her. Polly would, there's like a German Baptist network. She and her family, they can hop in the car and go from one place to the next and always just saying, oh, the German Baptist family can make it from here to California. <laughs> Not collecting any hotel points, but... Enjoying hospitality of other brothers and sisters. That could be the meaning of this command, but in the context of other commands, of these being one another commands, this seems to be more of an exhortation. This hospitality seems to be more an exhortation towards having an open house for worship, fellowship, and ministry. The church of the first century was centered more in homes, and we are blessed with these facilities but the home should still be the hub for our worship, our fellowship, and our ministry. And when I say home, I don't necessarily mean a house. It can be an apartment. It can be a condo. Wherever you are, welcoming it up to others in Jesus' name. It doesn't have to be big. It can be small. It's opening it up in Jesus' name. Stacy and I, have, we've all commented lately that our kitchen table, if our kitchen table could talk, we would be scared of some of the things we were, the walk down memory lane of what our kitchen table has centered around and the planting of a church and the raising of a family. See, it's our home where we just live our everyday life together. Our guards are often down. Our home is where we see faith lived out. You want to see someone live out their Christian faith? Go to their home. You want someone to see your Christian faith? Invite them in. Do this without grumbling, it says. It's a big inconvenience to open up your home, to get it ready, to, to be thoughtful and maybe put some food out, kind of chairs, how the chairs can be rearranged. It's going to have wear and tear on your home. I mean, the number of small groups we've had in our home, and then one time that 
little boy got off and got into my, my boys' rooms, and, and I had to like counsel my oldest son, Nathan, because all his Legos got totally destroyed. <laughs> this is for the Lord, Nathan. <laughs> in, the, in this context, too, first century, and maybe, who knows, in these coming years, in the places of persecution, to show hospitality, put a target on your home as a threat. So that our lens into eternity ought to shape our life into the present. The end of all things is at hand. We ought to show hospitality. Why? We look into the future, and here's what Jesus says. Hey, my father's house got a lot of rooms. I've gone to prepare a place for you. I'll come back and bring you so you can be where I am. So with us knowing that, if he's preparing a place for us, how are we not preparing a place for people in our homes? And invite them in as we know and follow Jesus. This is how we'll shine the light of Jesus. Just practical hospitality. Serve one another. Be self-controlled, sober-minded, love earnestly, and show hospitality. But now comes the fourth section of serving one another. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. All Christians have received gifts from God. Graces in life and spiritual gifts for his ministry. Peter does not list these out as Paul does in several of his different letters. But he does give us the purpose of the gifts. What are these gifts? They could be resources, talents, abilities, influence, connections. You are called to steward the gifts you've been given in service to others. So your name is steward, not owner. God is owner and gives you things to steward in his ownership. We own nothing. Everything we have is from God. And we owe everything to God, to his will and his directives for his glory. Well, what, how, do I know that, how do I know what I'm gifted with, Derek? Gifts are discovered not in passive introspection, but just in active living. Do what your hands, or it's in front of your hands to do, Ecclesiastes will tell us. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. And you may be good at it, or you may not be good at it. If you're good at it, maybe one of your gifts. If you're not good at it, go find someone else to do it as you keep doing it until you pass it off. William Carey, the father of modern mission, says this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I mean, too often we're passively waiting, like, I, I don't know if God even, he may have overlooked me. I, do you see how well that guy's, that person over there is like gifted? I wish I was like that. We can be Eeyore and we can just kind of moan and groan because we don't like what God's done in our life. Go back to Psalm 16, please. The, the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. He, he's poured out his grace upon us. We are uniquely made in his image. There's no one else like you. Don't try to be someone else because he made you to be you. I would often say this, maybe other church leaders, often the greatest critic and know-it-all are those who do nothing but judge others for the way they serve. 
gifts are not here for personal promotion, but for common good. It's not an equal distribution of gifts, but a committed distribution of service. Please hear me. As we look upon this, even this small little church, we don't all have the same gifts. That's what makes us a body. We're different, but yet the, together. There's not an equal distribution of gifts, but there should be an equal committedness to serving. And this notion of equality, let me speak to it for just a second. Life is never equal. Our kids are tired of hearing that. Life is not equal. No amount of redistribution is going to ever make it equal. And so now into our vocabulary is now a new word called privilege. It's to describe the assets and privileges or advantages that you have over another group. And in a sinful world, there are these group dynamics in the course of human history. But my question is, are we to feel guilty for what we have? Or are we to serve with what we have? See, there's a difference. How can we both be guilty before others for what we have and also grateful to God for what we have? It can't be both. And so we should not forsake God's goodness in our life, yet because of God's goodness in our life, we should work earnestly to then love others in God's name, both in word and deed. We will never make it equal for everyone else, but we should so put ourselves in the place of a servant so that we then bless others, are generous with others, and care for them in their life. It's, it's different than the narrative that's being shared today, but this is the command of Scripture. Don't feel guilty for what God's given you. Take where you are and now use it to bless others in God's name. Understanding others' story, others' positions, but knowing that all things are working together for God's glory. Two categories of gifts here. Two big categories, speaking and serving. There's so much that could be said here on the proclamation here. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is the one who serves in the strength that God supplies. That's practical serving. Christian ministry is both speaking and serving, loving both in word and deed. Some of you are talkers. Some of y'all don't want to say a word. You just want something to do. And your service is practical ministry. Others are just more relational teaching and counseling. Some of us work with our words more. Some of us work with our hands more. How has the Lord shaped you for service in Christ's church and for work in this world? Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Can we start, get out of our tunnel vision of today and start looking more to the blessed hope that we await? I know that so much of our crisis has got us right here, ostrich in the sand, just trying to look at the next step. Can we look beyond and see the promises and the grandeur of Scripture of what God has promised and what's coming? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's breaking in now. 
shaping us more to be conformed to the image of Christ. Seeing the kingdom come to more people come to saving faith in Christ. So we're to be sober-minded. We're to love one another, show hospitality, serve one another, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We are to obey God in all things because God is to be glorified in all things. And this is to Christ's glory and dominion forever and ever. To Him, this is the doxology, it's not even at the end of this letter, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end of all things is at hand, friends. The end end days may be here. This is not a time for fear, but a time for faith. It's not a time for pause, it's a time for action. It's a time to love one another again in church community. Let's pray.